Lord, we ask that you would have your way with us this morning, that you would um, allow us to be teachable, that your word would be made known, Lord, through your messenger. Lord, I just ask that I would simply be your mouthpiece and that you would be declared and your gospel pressed home and our hope, Lord, in you uh, realized afresh. Uh, teach us, strengthen us, mold us, and shape us, Lord, to be like your son, Jesus Christ, we ask now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. My mother passed away uh, a few years ago, and one of, the, one of the stories that I heard about from her in her latter years was the fact that she took a boat ride from Calcutta, India, um, to uh, Cape Town, South Africa, during the Second World War. She was 16 years old. And from that boat ride, they were supposed to continue to, to New York. But what happened was the, when they got to Cape Town, the boat was sequestered. And they just had to find some place to live for three weeks. And finally, they got back on another boat, but this was a warship. And they had to make the trip from South Africa, Cape Town in particular, all the way across the ocean and up through the dangerous waters into uh, the city of, or the harbor of New York. Now, the, the, the waters were dangerous because of the German U-boat submarines that were shooting at everything, passenger boats, warships, it didn't matter. And of course, as she's telling the story, I'm thinking to myself, first of all, I hadn't heard this before. She's 16 years old. I mean, what, you know, we're worried about our kids getting on a bus and going to, you know, someplace, right? She's 16 years old, and she's on this journey. And I, I just asked her, I said, Mom, how did you feel about, you know, what was going on? What were you thinking during that time? And as you were going through the waters and all the possibilities that were there before you. And this is what her reply was. It was simple, but it was profound. She said, well... We knew we had to go through the passage with the possibility of attack. There was really nothing that I could do. The captain was steering the ship, so we just trusted God to carry us through. I mean, it's, it's so simple. And yet there was a, just a simplistic trust in a sovereign God who was at work in her life. And friends, there's something beautiful about that. There's something wonderful about just simply stepping back and saying, God, I'm not exactly sure how this journey is going to end, but you're in control, and it, it, the captain is the one who's steering the ship, so I have to trust him, and I have to trust you, and if we get there, we get there, and if we don't, then I am in your hands. So for, for her, those were troubled waters that God wanted her to go through to shape her faith in him, even at that age of 16. And friends, we, we, we all go on journeys. We all are sent by God to, to difficult circumstances. Sometimes uh, they have lots of struggles. Sometimes they're not pleasant. Sometimes we're uncertain of what is ahead. Sometimes there's obstacles in the way. And other times, the journey is smooth. And what we have here today is a section of Scripture where Jesus sends the disciples on a journey into difficult waters. And I can tell you, they didn't like what was going on. And so this morning, 
Um, I want to present to you just kind of like the melodic line, the theme of this passage. And we're going we're gonna to build off of this because Jesus here is compelling us to look at the journey of our lives as an opportunity to know and encounter him more. And what comes out in this text is even when our hearts are hardened, and you might even say, because our hearts are hardened. It's interesting to me that even the whole story of the the loaves and the fishes comes up in this text. And even before the story of the loaves and the fishes and the feeding of the five thousands, Jesus brings up the whole concept of bread and his provision. But here we have a, a new journey, a new adventure that they're going to be sent on. And I would like for us to think of the structure of this text around this idea of the boat. It really is kind of telling us the, the various stages that are taking place here. We're going to begin by getting in the boat. Then we're going to consider staying in the boat. And then we're going to consider what happens when we get out of that boat and looking through the disciples and then the disciples and what they're experiencing as really a, a, an area where we can consider how we are interacting with Christ and the journey that he sends us on. So let's consider, first of all, getting in the boat. Now remember, ministry has been successful. I don't know about you, but gathering 5,000 men, which means probably six to 8,000 people together, and listening to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God for a whole day, and then being a part of an incredible miracle of Jesus providing food for all those people and having tons left over would constitute to me successful ministry, all right? That's the kind of thing that all missions organizations would love to see happen, right? This was a good day of ministry. It started out kind of like, all right, what's going to happen here? But at the end, what's going on? The disciples are all a part of this, and, and they're just saying to themselves, wow, what a day. I mean, things are really going well. I guess we'll never have to go without food, all right? Even if it does get late, all these people listening and, and hungry for physical and spiritual food, what an incredible master we have. What, what an incredible day. Life is good. And then Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, get into the boat and go out to the sea to Bethsaida. So Jesus here is ushering them into the boat. And so we begin here with what I'm calling an urgent command. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus commanding his disciples to get in the boat and go out to the sea. This, this word made literally means to force, to compel, to corral them. And it has the sense that Jesus is moving them away from one thing into something else. Now, what is going on here? What was Jesus doing? Maybe he was trying to protect the disciples from the crowd. In fact, if you were to turn to John's gospel, the same story, here is how the record in John's gospel ends. This is chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 of John. When the people saw the sign that he had done, 
They said, this indeed, or is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he was concerned probably about the disciples because of the crowd and because of the way they were forcing themselves on Jesus. Maybe it's because he was protecting the disciples from themselves. Maybe the disciples were getting you know, caught up with the crowd's assessment that Jesus was the prophet coming to deliver the people and overthrow Rome. And we're told in verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So they, they weren't getting what Jesus was saying. In other words, they, they, they saw the miracle. They saw that Jesus was creating these fish and loaves and feeding the people, but they still didn't comprehend exactly what was taking place. And maybe they're getting caught up with what the crowd was saying. Or maybe it's possible that there had been such great success being men in such an incredible situation. Maybe they were thinking themselves as big shots now. Maybe they're thinking themselves, you know, we're with this dynamic, incredible leader. I wonder what's going to happen next. You know, this is really cool. Yeah, let me tell you about this Jesus. You know, man, we did this and we did this and we did this. And, and look at us. And we're, you know, we're, we're, we're to his disciples. We were the ones that were actually carrying the bags of fish and, and loaves, just so you know that. You know, we were a part of what was going on here, and uh, yeah, you know, he's, uh, it's great, all that kind of stuff is going on. We don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us, but the idea here is that there's, there's a reason that Jesus is pushing them out, compelling them, commanding them in an urgent way, in an immediate way, to the point that he's forcing them to get in the boat and off into the sea. Now, friends, there's, there's a beauty here for us to consider that, that the life with Christ is always moving. There's always something new happening. There's changes that are taking place. We must remember that. And, and, and we do experience sometimes of success in ministry. And that's a good thing. It's healthy, actually, to reflect, even as we mentioned today, being Thanksgiving coming up, to reflect on a ministry that God is taking you through and the ways that he has demonstrated himself over the course of time. But the question is, do we find ourselves constantly going back to the good old days? You know, I remember when I was a teenager and we had this event and that outreach and young people were coming to the Lord and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they don't just do ministry like they used to do, you know, some people would say, back then. Oh, man, people were just coming to the Lord in droves. And if only we could do the same thing now, right? This is the good old days. And there's a sense looking back, you're just rejoicing about being a part of all that. But we must remember is that those good old days have their place, but those good old days are not to be the fuel to live out our Christian lives. They help us. They remind us that God is a great God and he works his plan, but he wants us to be on the journey that he's called us for ministry today. Not the one that happened 15 years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So we need to understand today through the lens of God's word. Not that today is the tail that wags the dog of ministry no one ever wags God. You understand that analogy? I mean, a dog you know, wags its tail, and 
we think, well, let's, we'll grab the tail, and it's the tail that wags the dog. No, 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 no. But today is important because today is what God is calling us to now. The memories of the past are fuel to help us consider and remember that God can continue to do what he wants to do through us today, and we need that. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we ready and willing to move on to the next phase Christ has for us? Let me explain what I mean. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've been on a mission trip. Maybe it was when you were a teenager. Maybe it was with a church youth group. Maybe it was with us going to Bolivia or Ukraine or some other place, right? And you go on that mission trip, and it's just an awesome experience. You're seeing God with a little bit more clarity. Your focus, your attention is there, and you learn so much, and you come home. And when you come home, what do you, what do you face? The normal mundane routine of life and, and the, the things that you learn from that missions trip because you're on that trip, they're just not enough to, to, to push you on and to, to kind of be the, the fuel. It just kind of dissipates a little bit. You need new, fresh interaction with God, even though you've been on a missions trip. You go to a conference or you go to a retreat or you, you go to some kind of camp experience and you travel with a group of others and there's already this anticipation, that, oh, this is what's going to happen. You know, I mentioned there's going to be a conference with D.A. Carson and let's just say there were 15 of us that were going like, oh man, I listened to D.A. Carson last week, I can't wait to listen to him and you hear him, you're expectant and you're coming back and you say, wasn't that great, it's great and then guess what, on Monday you go back to work. And, and, and you come back to diapers you need to change. And you come back to lawns that need to be mowed or leaves that need to be raked up. And life is, is back to the mundane again. And, and yes, the conference is great. We need things like that. But the point is we cannot live on the fumes of those conferences, those retreats. We need daily fresh encounters with God. Opening his word. Listen to what he has to say, spending time in prayer. So these are all great opportunities to grow, but they're also great opportunities to not grow, especially if I rest too much on them as marks of spiritual maturity. Now, friends, you, you know this because you're part of Gateway. Our mode of operation as Christians is not to run to one might want to say spiritual gathering where you're going to get some kind of a spiritual high and then the next month run to the next spiritual place to get another spiritual high. Christian life is lived out with times of refreshment in the word in the context of church. It's mundane, it's normal, it's regular, but it's beautiful. It's kind of like you saying, you know, every week we're going to go out for this big, huge steak meal, you know, steak meal. It comes to a point in time you get tired of the steak and you're just like, you know, I just want some home-cooked food, right? There's a sense in which that home-cooked stuff is like, ah, oh, I love it the way mom makes it. She always makes it the same way, right? And this is the way it is in our Christian walk, just to, to love the beauty of how God has, has established the interaction with him through his word. Now, all those things may be milestones, but he's saying to us this morning, don't get too comfortable with where you are at. Don't get too complacent because you're used to your present Christian walk. I have a fresh voyage I want you to experience. And listen, by that, I'm not saying some big wow thing. I'm just saying there's a fresh new turn. There's a fresh new direction. There's a fresh problem or struggle. And he's saying, listen to me and get in the boat. I'm sending you out on a new journey, 
It may be different than what you're used to. It may be similar to what you've already been doing. It may be bumpy. It may be smooth. But it's today's journey. It's today's ministry. It's today's opportunity to learn, to grow, and experience God's hand at work in your life. Get in the boat. So that's that, this urgent command. But then we also see in this text something really unusual. So Jesus sends out his disciples, and what does he do? Hey, you get, a, you get in the boat, go out to the, into the sea, and I'm going up to the mountain to pray. While he dismissed the crowd, it says, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Now, though Christ was one with the Father, he lived in this constant mode of prayer. And in times of crisis or special situations, he would retreat to the mountains or, uh, uh, or some particular place to pray. In fact, there's three specific times. One would be uh, before he actually chose the disciples, he retreated to a place to pray and to consider that. Um, we know that he spent the night in prayer in the Garden Gethsemane in anticipation of his crucifixion. And we also see him praying here as he sends out his disciples, as they're going off by themselves, alone. Now, what did he pray for? The text doesn't tell us, but there's some things in the greater text that we can consider that are part of what Jesus would be praying about. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 tells us that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew why he had come, but he would go to the Father and, and, and commune with him in, in anticipation of what was yet to take place in this journey to the cross. We've got to be careful that we're not just thinking that Jesus went hopping and skipping joyfully to the cross. There's a human dynamic. There's a, there's a weight at the end of this journey where he would have to not only hang on the cross, but he would bear the burden of sin and the, the wrath of God. And we see that demonstrated in particular when he is in the garden. And he, he, he says, if you can take this cup away. But he knows that the cup would not be taken away because this is what he came to do. Yet in the context here, we, we see the disciples and we, we recognize that he's training them. He's, he's in the mode of, of nurturing them. And so I'm sure he was praying for his disciples and, to, and their nurture and, and the training that was, that was taking place in particular because he would eventually depart. But you know the story. When Jesus departs, what does he do? He sends out the disciples. So part of the gospel plan, hear this, wasn't just to go to the cross. Part of the gospel plan was to go to the cross, but while he's going to the cross was to raise up men who would carry on the ministry of the gospel that he's preaching now to these people. And so there's this dual thing that's happening here. And so there's this training, there's, this, there's this, uh, uh, these lessons that these, these disciples need to learn. And the, the same is true with us. When he sends us on a journey, he is also praying for us. He is also looking at us. He is also considering us. Notice the comparison that you have here in verse 47. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Out on the sea, alone on the land. All right? There are two separate places, two separate considerations. 
But Jesus here is off in prayer. And something else is happening with the disciples. Now let's, let's move on. The disciples are in the boat. And I'm going to call this next section staying in the boat. You'll understand how that plays out here in just a little bit. But I want you to notice verse 48. We're, we're told about the struggle of the disciples, the struggle that they're going through here. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. The disciples had been rowing for hours, and they were at least three to four miles out in the water. You guys ever know what it's like? Ever been in a canoe before? Maybe you were just the only person in the canoe, and you were paddling away in the back, and the winds came up, and you're realizing the wind was catching the front of that canoe, and it's like, you're not getting anywhere. And this is like really, really hard work. And this is what was going on. They've been rowing for hours. And it says they were making headway painfully. In other words, the wind was against them, and they were distressed and straining on the oars. Now, this wasn't as bad as the storm that Jesus calmed earlier, but it was a significant storm. They had dutifully left the crowds to follow the will of their master, only to be put in the sea that is blowing against them, even away from their desired destination. And so it isn't so much that they fear for their lives, but more that they were exhausted and miserable. Have you ever felt that way in the midst of a journey that the Lord has sent you out on? And you wonder what was going through their minds. Why did Jesus send us out here? We were perfectly fine on the shore. When will this strong wind die down? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Why did he leave us alone? Doesn't he care? Here we are alone in the middle of the sea with no Wi-Fi and no Netflix. I mean, what kind of master is he? What kind of journeys does he send us on? Let's just think through this a little bit. What is the one letter you typically loathe to receive? It's the one that has enclosed in it a jury duty summons. <laughs> and you're like, listen, I don't want to break my time and have to go and sit in a room with a whole bunch of other people only to be told, well, we don't need you today. And I've just blown a day. Oh, we're going we're gonna to pay you a little bit. Yeah, that doesn't compare to what I would have gotten if I had gone to work. And, and so we have already this attitude about the jury duty summons, right? You with me there, right? But I take a different approach to that. And I think we all need to. We need to say, if God wants me to serve on a jury, um, I need to throw myself into that. And I need to trust God. I put it this way. If you were the person that was going to be on trial... What kind of people would you want to be a part of your journey? People that were just like, oh, I want to get out of here. I don't care. I'm just going to, yeah, sure, fine, guilty. I get to go home and enjoy Thanksgiving. Is that what you want? No, I don't think so. But it can be frustrating. It can be a change of plans. And the point here is this, that it is a journey. It's an unexpected journey that you're going to go through that might last a week. It might, might last two weeks. It might last longer. And it has implications. How about sickness? It's a new journey. I wasn't expecting to get sick this week, but I guess that's what the Lord has for me. Loss of a job. I wasn't planning this, but now I have to look for something else, and what am I going to do now? 
There's seasons in marriage that can be difficult. There's seasons in parenting that are hard to navigate. There are financial struggles. There are times of discouragement and despondency. There are times of increased temptation to sin. There are struggles in the lives of your adult children. There are struggles in the lives of your grandchildren or great-grandchildren even. And in the midst of those struggles, we have been rowing hard in the boat that God has given us. And the questions come over and over and over again. Why is God allowing this? What is God doing? Has he abandoned me? Has he forgotten about me in my struggle? And so why are people ready to give in or to jump ship? Probably because they're tired. You guys ever get tired of what God has called you to? Okay, a lot of heads are nodding. The rest of you are lying. (laughs) Maybe because you just don't see any progress. Maybe it's because you're just fearful. Maybe it's because you just feel alone. Maybe what they left and what you're leaving is more attractive than what you have now. And so you just want to get out of the boat. Just get me to shore. But notice verse 48. This is all kind of this backdrop to what's happening. Jesus saw them struggling. He wasn't so consumed with what he was doing that he was neglecting his disciples out on the sea. Even from where he was, he was keeping an eye on them. And what we have here is just a clear reminder of God and his omnipresent. He he sees us in every situation, everywhere. And friends, that comforts us and that causes us to fear, right? We're comforted by the fact that he sees us. We're also daunted by the fact that he sees us at times. But he sees us in our distress. He sees us in our struggle when we're miserable, when we're tired, when we're up against the challenges. He sees those bills that are, that are piling up in the checkbook that is running high or the bad report that the doctor has given you or the, the argument you just had with your spouse as you were on your way to church. or the, He sees the, you kneel beside the sick bed of or the sick child and and the bed of that sick child. He he sees those things, friends. He's aware of what's going on. Sometimes it might feel that he's abandoned us, but he has not. He simply pushed us out for a journey. But he's watching and he's praying. And in, in those times, we must be asking the questions, and there's just two questions that I, I want us to, to think through here. They're very, very simple. Right? Nothing really simple, no, no, no profound statement here, but a reminder. First of all, what does God want me to learn? It's a good question to ask. What is God teaching me? Secondly, what does God want me to learn about Him? And sometimes we're so consumed with learning about stuff or how to get out of it or what buttons do I need to press that we miss the beauty of learning about God in the midst of our struggle. 
Now, as we continue on, I want you to notice the terror of the disciples, the terror of the disciples. Notice the next verse. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them. It is in those times of questioning, struggle, and doubt that we need to be reminded of this text. It was three o'clock in the morning. That's the fourth watch, three to six a.m. And Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the water. Literally, the expression means walking on the sea, but even more specifically, it means walking about the sea. It has the idea that he was gliding on the sea. In other words, Mark is making it very clear that Jesus was doing something that no mortal is able to do. Now, the master had come, but they didn't recognize him. Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. They screamed in fear, in terror, and there's nowhere to run. Now, we may not be impacted by this account due to, at least for me, being raised up in a Scooby-Doo climate where fear and terror are mixed with logic and humor. But the kind of terror that is taking place here is the kind that makes grown men and women cry and sob. It's not the kind of fear you experience when you're going click, 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 click on the top of a roller coaster and then you scream as you're going down. Or if you remember the, the ride there at... Uh, uh, at Disneyland, the Tower of Terror, where you went up and you pushed out, and all of a sudden you heard this click, and all of a sudden, and afterwards you're like, oh, that was so scary. Oh, I was terrified. Ah! No, 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 no. This is the kind of fear, friends, that causes you to curl up in the ball in the corner of a room in a closet, sobbing because you have just experienced something that you do not understand. And that's what these disciples are experiencing. And they have nowhere to run. Which is actually kind of humorous in the story, isn't it? They got nowhere to go. They have to face what is before them. They were stuck on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee because Jesus had sent them out. Why would Jesus allow this to happen? Why or what is he doing doesn't he care? And what we have taking place here is Jesus desiring to teach his disciples a, an incredibly important lesson. And what we have going on here is what is called a theophany. Now, a theophany is when God appears in some way and demonstrates himself by that appearance to mankind a manifestation of God in some visible form. It's from two words, theos and phano, right? God and manifest or show or display. And some of the things, some of the ways you've seen that before already in Scripture are, for example, the burning bush. God presented himself there. Um, the angel of the Lord, the pillar of fire and cloud that, that led and were, were there in the presence of the, the children of Israel in the wilderness, and what we have here is this 
theophany. And to the trained Hebrew ear, what's going on here, what Mark is expressing would be understandable and would be clear. And we want to look at three passages that just kind of help us understand that Jesus is connecting himself to the Old Testament. He's already done that. He did it, in fact, in the last episode when he fed the 5,000, right? I am the shepherd of the sheep. I am the, the bread of life. But now he is showing them something else. Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to read this. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is God speaking with Moses at Mount Sinai. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Three times in this text, God and Moses, the expression passed or passed by is used. And the idea is this passing by was a means by which God was going to demonstrate himself to Moses. He was not going to show himself fully, but he was going to show a little bit of his glory, which would encourage him and strengthen him and fuel him for ongoing ministry. Then we have 1 Kings 19.11. You know the story there of uh, Elijah on Mount Horeb and the incredible way that God demonstrated himself through this this, this battle, so to speak, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And, and then um, Jezebel shows up and Elijah just runs into a panic, right? And he finds himself in this place totally despondent. And um, God wants to encourage him now in verse 11. This is what he says. Go out and stand in the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. God passed by his, his presence, but he was able in that to, to show a little bit of his glory to um, Elijah at that point in time, to encourage him, to strengthen him, and to revive him, so to speak. Even, even in the book of Job, we have this expression, maybe used a little differently, but I, I think it, it, it connects uh, in, in a similar way. In, in Job 9, 8 through 11, we have this, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves, but I do not perceive him. So what we have here is Jesus connecting himself to the God of the Old Testament who passes by. Now just go back to the expression there in the text of Mark. And we have there in verse 48, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. It wasn't like, it was like, oh, I meant to do it, but I forgot, right? Now, the point is that he was, he was gliding across. He was showing something about himself that the disciples had not seen yet, that they needed to see. There was something about him that was, that was new 
that they needed to understand and learn that, that he was not just a master. He was not just a miracle worker. He was not just one who could create bread and, and fish out of bread and fish. He, he was the God of the Old Testament. Now, now he wants them to see that he's connected to this God. I hear this. Jesus sees us in our distress. But do we see him? In other words, if I'm in, if I'm in, a, in a counseling relationship with some, someone and they're going through some difficult times, one of the things that I, I like to do is I like to kind of they call it a, 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 a theological box. And the, the point is, in all that you're experiencing, you want to be able to say, all right, all this is a mess, all this is chaos, but what is God teaching you? And write down in that box, what is God teaching you about himself and about how he works with you? doesn't matter what you're going through. God is constantly reminding us of who he is and what he does. And we need to be seeing that. We need to be looking for that. And the disciples needed to see that also. Now, let's continue on here because we move then from terror to amazement. Notice as we continue in the passage here, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, the construction of this statement is a clear indication that Jesus, as on other occasions, is identifying himself as the great I am. If you know, John's gospel has these, these, what, seven I am statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. Mark's version of that is, it is I. Same Words, same kind of construction. Jesus is saying, hey, it's me. I am. Now, do you, do you see what Jesus is doing with his disciples? There's a reason I'm sending you out here. I want you to learn something. I want you to learn something about me. I'm Jehovah. I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I am the servant. And now he joins them and he comforts them and he says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. My friends, in the midst of our journey and our struggle and our trial, those are beautiful words. They are a reminder that the sovereign God is aware and completely in control. If he is the master of the sea that they've already experienced, he certainly still is. He certainly is demonstrating him, himself once again. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's a strange statement by Mark. <laughs> the, the wind ceased, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, let me remind you about the, the loaves and the bread and the hardness of their hearts. Now, to me, what Mark is doing is he's like saying, eh, 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 I want you to notice something here. And that's why I put at the beginning that Jesus wants to, to us to understand as we go on these, these journeys, these are an opportunity for us to learn and to encounter Jesus afresh even when we have hardened hearts. The, the, the hearts of the disciples were, were hard. They could not understand. They would not understand. In fact, look at Mark chapter 8, verse 8. This expression, 
utterly um, astounded or utterly amazed is used in Mark chapter 8, verse 8. This is a feeding of the 4,000. But it says there that the people were utterly satisfied. That is how you're going to feel about 4 o'clock on Thursday. You're going to be, I am utterly, utterly satisfied. I mean, you're going to be full to the gills. Now, I just wanted you to take that word and that description and bring it back here. These guys are utterly astounded or utterly amazed. They could not be amazed anymore than they are amazed about what they are experiencing with Jesus here. So, this, is, this is more than Wow. This is, I don't know how you put that into words, utterly astounded. And as soon as he enters the boat, the wind stops, the disciples are amazed, their hearts are hardened. The question in Mark 4, 41, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him has already been answered over and over again, but their hearts are hardened. They do not see what is right before them even when he displays himself like this. But they are amazed. Now, in the storms of life, are we just looking for relief? Or are we looking for Jesus to reveal himself to us? Yes, we're tired. Yes, we're ready to throw in the towel. Yes, we're ready to jump ship. But are we looking with hungry eyes to the Savior, to Jesus? Are we anticipating his hand, his presence, his comfort, his word, his power? Now, what happens next? Well, Mark tells us that their hearts were hardened. John says that they got to their destination. Matthew says this, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So there's a sense in which their hard hearts now are being challenged. They're being challenged by this revelation of, of who Jesus is. And friends, that's one of the reasons why he sends us on journeys, to challenge our hearts. And we might just be looking at the, the stuff and the circumstance of the journey rather than what is God actually doing in us. Getting into the boat, staying in the boat is what we're called to and then thirdly, getting out of the boat. Verse 53 and following. What we have really here is a summary passage, but it's, it's, it's a, a fresh new day of ministry. Look at verse 53. I'll read it to the end here. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and they moored the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever, they, wherever he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This was a new day of ministry. There's a sense in which when they got out of the boat, it was back to work. <laughs> Aren't you thankful for that? I've just got through my, my journey of struggle, and guess what? I'm back to work again. Right? This, is, this is life in the mundane. This is where we live. 
One experience moves into the next. Now, here, here's just a simple application. I want you to notice it says they came to land at Gennesaret, but where did he tell them to go to? Bethsaida, which is about a 10-mile difference. Listen, we may not know exactly where we are headed, but we know that it will be where God wants us to be when we get there. Let me say that again. We may not know exactly where we're headed, but we know that it will be where God wants us to be when we get there. Aren't you happy about that? All you type A people that plan out your lives fully and completely and have it all figured out. But friends, this is what we see in Scripture, is it not? Joseph was sold into slavery. I don't think he anticipated to be in Egypt or in jail or even as the second in command. But that was God's plan all along. Israel left Egypt and found themselves at the Red Sea, then Kadesh Barnea, then the wilderness, then the promised land. I mean, if you were writing a book on the history of people or what it should look like, you probably wouldn't say, well, they spent 40 years in a wilderness. But that's God's plan. And there was a reason for it. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, was going to Bithynia when he got a call to go to Macedonia. He had a plan. He had a goal. He had a missionary journey that he was going to be on. And all of a sudden, God says, no, you're going here. And that's why this is so important for us to understand. We may not know exactly where we're headed, but we know that, when we will, when we, uh, that it will be where God wants us to be when we get there. Sometimes we want to know God's will ahead of time, and we're not willing to realize that God's will is today. This is what it is. This is what we have. And now I've got to live my life. Why? Because this is now a new journey. <laughs> I'm in a boat. It's a new boat. He's sending me out. What am I going to do with that? So we must allow him the freedom, as if he needs it, right, to move us as he wishes so that he can learn, we can learn to trust him more and see his glory again and again. The storms of life take us to places we would not expect and to ministry we would not have anticipated. God is at work in us even when he pushes our boats off into the sea. And friends, this is a time for a new voyage, a new challenge, a new opportunity to serve the Lord. I'm not telling you what that is. It can be very mundane. It could be a massive change. And I want to just hone in on three aspects of, I want to say, greater application as we bring things to a close. Early on in church history, one of the, the names of what we would call the sanctuary in the church was called the nave. And that word is a nautical word. It's the main part of, of the church building, but it is also the same word from which we get the word ship. And that's why the navy is called the navy, right? And so what happened was that the, the church loved that metaphor, brought that metaphor, and saw themselves as a ship that was on a journey. And so the first area of application is this, is to consider the voyage 
Jesus has for his church. If you attend or you're a part of Gateway, you are on a journey with a local church that God has called out to be together, to glorify him, knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ together. And Gateway has and will continue to go through its own struggles as a church. At times, the struggles might be financial. At other times, it will be heartache over sickness and and death and sorrow. At other times, it will be maybe a sin that has gripped one of our own. But during all of those times, friends, it's an opportunity for us to learn, and more particularly, to learn about God. Something happens with us. Change takes place. Okay, Lord, what are you going to do? What does this new journey look like? How can we glorify you? How can we avoid being, you know, pulling on the oars and just getting angry and frustrated and, and full of pain? But sometimes we're not angry or frustrated. We're just pulling. We're just pulling. It's just it's the way life is. And sometimes for a church, it can be hard going. Secondly, I want us to consider the voyage God has for our family. Families go through all sorts of seasons, don't they? I mean, there's, first of all, there's marriage. And once, once they're married, they realize this is far more work than any marriage counselor could actually express to them. Even though he said it multiple times in marriage counseling, listen, you're going to have difficulty. There's going to be challenges. You're like, oh, no, that could never happen. We just love each other so much. <laughs> and then the honeymoon comes. And the first argument comes. Or the, the realization that this person actually does some things that you don't like. And, and then the babies come. And then they turn into toddlers. And then they turn into junior hires. And then teenagers and then college students, right? I mean, there's just these transitions that happen. In the family. And then there's changes in vocation. Sometimes those changes in vocation mean you have to move. Sometimes it means you you need to find a new church because you have to move. And so there's all these changes that can be taking place. Sometimes it's the caring for parents who are growing older and getting to the place where God is bringing them home. Or maybe they're siblings that need attention but friends, there's all sorts of journeys that you can be on, even at the same time. <laughs> They're journeys that God has called us to. And then, of course, there's the, the journey or the voyage that he has for you in particular. Friends, as you look through this text, I want you to notice and put ourselves in the place of the disciples, which I think is an appropriate application for us here. Jesus sends us. He prays for us. He watches us. He joins us, he teaches us, he comforts us, he guides us all along the journey. This is true when we're going through the storms of life. The ship of the church that we've talked about will constantly have times of high winds and waves that we'll have to deal with. But we must keep our eyes on him, trusting him, knowing that he's watching, knowing that he does care. Let me ask you a question. What would disobedience on the part of the disciples look like? <laughs> I'm not getting in that boat. 
dry clothes, right? A warm bed, a full stomach, opportunities to tell lots of people lots of stories about Jesus. That's ministry, isn't it? Right? Oh, how he heals, how he casts out demons. Oh, he's an, he's, he's an incredible master. Why can't we just be doing that instead of being in this boat? And we could convince ourselves that our disobedience actually is obedience. I want to finish up here with a few words from Kent Hughes. Listen to what he says. He says, if you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your caring, your commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to things which the uncommitted heart will never experience. While obedience will bring contrary winds, it will also bring joy. Never climb a mountain and you will never bruise your shins but you will never stand on its peak, exulting in the view. Never play baseball, and you will never strike out, but you will never hit a home run either. Never obey Christ, and you may miss some of life's contrary winds, but you will never know the winds of the Holy Spirit in your sails, bearing you on in service and in power. My friends, I just want to say this. I want Gateway to be a church that even if we have to go through contrary winds, that the Holy Spirit is blowing in our sails. And that should be true for all of us as we live our lives, even if they're personal struggles that we're going through. So I want all of us to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to get in the boat that God is giving us? Are we willing to stay in the boat that God is giving us? And are we willing to get out of the boat when we reach that destination that he has for us and there to serve him faithfully. There's a new voyage up ahead and it starts now. May God be glorified by his children as we seek to do his will. Knowing he's watching, knowing he is present with us, knowing that he is guiding us through his word by his spirit. Lord, help us today. Lord, there have been so many times in my life that you have said, Rod, get in the boat. And Lord, there have been times when I have fought you on that. Lord, may, may we as a church begin to see afresh that, that the times of challenge and trial and difficulty are the means by which you are seeking to teach us and to shape us and to mold us to be more like you. And Lord, that is critical for our ongoing sanctification. But Lord, there are also incredible opportunities for us to know you and to encounter you in fresh ways. And in ways, Lord, that you will actually reveal the sinful of our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would allow us, Lord, to place ourselves in those seasons of difficulty and not run from them, but 
but trust that through them you are accomplishing your will. Our desire, Lord, is to be faithful to you, to trust you, to live through that. And Lord, to go on to what you've called us to next. May we get in the boat. Give us strength, Lord, to stay in the boat. And Lord, may we be ready to get out of the boat when we moor on that shore. And Lord, to serve you faithfully with what you've called us to do in your name. Amen.